Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we're going to focus on a substance that has had a major impact on my own life and anecdotally has also made a positive difference in many other lives. The substance is MDMA, and at long last, the U.S. government is allowing it to be studied in a more rigorous and scientific manner. In the uh, program notes for today, I'll also include a link to a recent story in the Los Angeles Times about uh, research in this area. And in addition to mentioning the study that we will be learning about in this podcast, the uh, push to help veterans suffering from PTSD is also being considered. So uh, for my personal story about MDMA, you can uh, hear it in my podcast number 380, which is titled Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate. Now, today we are first going to get to hear the Palenque Norte talk that Alicia Danforth gave at the 2013 Burning Man Festival. In it, she brings us up to date about the research that she's been involved in for the past several years. And following that, I'm going to play the recording of a conversation that I had with Alicia and Dr. Charles Grobe. Uh, It took place about a week ago, and in that conversation, Alicia and Charlie talked about their new FDA-approved study, uh, one that began only this month. And after those two segments, I'll be back to give you an update on our annual pledge drive. However, in case you're wondering, during the first half of the drive, we have now raised over two-thirds of the funds that we need for a full year of operation. So it looks like you're going to have to put up with me here in the salon for another year at least. (laughs) And for me, that is a very good thing. Uh, Hopefully you feel the same way. But first, let's return to the playa at uh, last year's Burning Man Festival as Pez introduces Alicia Danforth, who will begin our enlightenment about the concept of neurodiversity. Good evening, everybody. So I have the pleasure of introducing our next speaker. Alicia Danforth, PhD, is the co-investigator for a new FDA-approved clinical study looking at the effect of MDMA-assisted therapy on social anxiety in autistic adults at the Los Angeles Biomedical Research Institute, Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Her work as a co-facilitator on a clinical trial with psilocybin for existential anxiety related to advanced cancer inspired her to become a clinical psychologist, and she completed her pre-doc clinical internship this summer at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. Alicia co-developed and co-taught the first graduate-level course on psychedelic theory, research, and clinical considerations for therapists and researchers in training. Since 2004, she has volunteered as a Black Rock Ranger and care service peer counselor at Burning Man, Boom, and other festivals and events. Her areas of focus is supporting individuals who are experiencing challenging altered states of consciousness. And without further ado, Alicia. Um, tonight I'm going to take full advantage of being at Burning Man to give the talk I've been dying to talk since I, I've been dying to give since I've, I've started this research. Um, I'm going to make it as fun as possible, and my hope is that I'll present some new perspectives that will maybe shift your thoughts about this concept of neurodiversity, and I'll go into a little more detail about that. 
Um, I want to start where I left off. I want to start with the conclusion of a talk that I gave at Shift Camp earlier in the week, and we're going to take it from there into the fun stuff. So what I want to start with is just an acknowledgement that uh, individuals on the autism spectrum are not in their own little world. They're very much with us in our world, and uh, they, they simply process information differently than we do. But I want to get away from this idea that they're somehow separate and not a part of our community. Because all week long, as, as I've been speaking, I've been approached by autistic individuals who have come up to share their stories with me. So they're here with us at Burning Man, and I want to raise awareness about that fact that maybe the typically developing amongst us may encounter some opportunities to help enable them have the best Burning Man experience possible. So this talk is about all of us. Uh, put very simply, neurodiversity is a movement away from the concept of autism as pathology, disease, disorder, and looking at the broad spectrum of cognitive difference and all the shades of gray uh, in between. So that's what I'm referring to when I refer to neurodiversity. We're all on a broad spectrum. And at this point in history, if anyone tells you they know what autism is, don't believe them. It's unknown at this time. It's an understudied area. And my interest is not in treating or curing autism with psychedelic-assisted therapy. I'm looking at ways in which MDMA-assisted therapy may improve quality of life, specifically by reducing social anxiety. So I want to be clear about that to begin with. I do not speak for autistic individuals. It's not my aim to give them a voice. They have a voice. And so I ask them questions. I ask them very open-ended questions for the qualitative portion of my mixed methods dissertation. I asked in semi-structured interview essentially three basic questions intended to reduce my own bias as someone who has been involved in clinical research with psychedelics. I asked them to tell me about what they experienced when they tried MDMA ecstasy. What happened? And let them tell me in their own words about their experiences. I also asked them what led them to try MDMA ecstasy for the first time. And uh, their answers weren't really significantly different than probably what most people in this room would, would say if I asked them. So there, there weren't a lot of significant findings there. But I also asked them what, if anything, they noticed changed after they did MDMA. So a lot of the responses that I got in the interview transcripts were about change. I used a process called applied thematic analysis to pour over every word of you know, thousands of pages of transcript to look for emergent themes. How did the topics that people discussed cluster around common themes? And so, um, as I mentioned at the start of the talk, I, I'm going to do the fun presentation I've wanted to do for a long time. I've organized the themes around a fun analogy, and I'm going to use some visual images uh, to help you remember the key themes. 
for listeners who will be listening in the future on podcasts. I'll try to uh, keep you in mind, too, and, and kind of describe what we're looking at here as we go along. So, a brief word about the study population. Uh, for my dissertation, I interviewed um, two female and 22 male individuals who identified as being on the autism spectrum. There's a little bit of information there about uh, diversity. The age range of participants was 21 to 49 years old with the mean age of being 30.8 years. Uh, 22 of the 26 individuals identified as white. So anyone inspired to do research in this field in the future, I encourage you to um, take measures to include more ethnic diversity. Um, the AQ is an autism quotient um, assessment measure. It's not diagnostic. It's not intended to tell someone whether or not they have autism, but it'll give you a good indication of whether or not you have a relatively high um, pro uh, profile in terms of autistic traits. Sometimes it's used as a screening to help someone know whether or not they should invest in getting more ext extensive assessment. The mean score for typically developing individuals is 16. Uh, in this study, the mean AQ score was 37.6, to give you some indication. And uh, two third-party individuals who knew the interview participants well. In one case, um, it was a best friend, and in the other, it was a romantic partner. I interviewed them as well to say, I know they've talked about this change. Did you see a before and after change in them to get that sort of third-party validation? Uh, well, just one more reminder before we dig in here and start hearing some of the quoted material from the interviews, I want to remind everyone that autism is a spectrum. One of the most helpful things someone told me before I dove into the dissertation was they said, don't forget, if you've met one person on the autism spectrum, you've met one person on the autism spectrum. There was a lot of heterogeneity in this study group. Everyone was unique and very different, and that uh, contributed to the diversity of stories that we're going to hear. Let's dig into the big themes. So change came up time and time again, and to help me organize uh, all the different categories of change, I recognized that they fell into roughly five categories, which I referred to as the five Sees, and we're going to go through each one briefly. Their courage, communication, connection, communion, and clarity. And I'm going to use the Wizard of Oz as our structuring analogy as we walk through to see how the participants' experiences were somewhat similar to what Dorothy and her companions experienced in Oz. So first off, we have the Cowardly Lion, and as I'm sure most of us in the room know, uh, his adventures in Oz helped him attain his courage. And courage was a theme that emerged repeatedly in my participants telling me what happened when they took MDMA. To give you an idea of what that sounded like, um, I'm going to be reading quotes. Everyone who's identified by name, I just want to let everyone know it's a pseudonym, so everyone's identity is protected. So this is how Haas described his increase in courage that he acquired through using MDMA. He's a 21-year-old male. He said, I guess it broke down barriers is how I would describe it. Yeah, I felt like up until that point, I just sort of always lived in a shell, like in a bubble. 
the way I isolated from people. And yeah, I just sort of tore that down and said, there's no need for there to be a barrier. That gives you the flavor of some of the newfound courage people described. Uh, one of my favorite examples of someone who found <laughs> courage was, he found the courage to dance. And he said he had never been able to dance. Often with an Asperger's diagnosis, there'll be you know, some challenges with kind of awkward gait. And you know, with the teasing you get in school, a lot of times these individuals would grow up with a fear of, of dancing in public. But he said, after about an hour, I jumped out on the dance floor and I had moves like Michael Jackson. I don't know what I looked like, but I felt like Michael Jackson. Um, so time and time again, I heard stories of barriers coming down, inhibition being reduced, openness increasing, self-confidence increasing to new levels that they hadn't experienced prior to MDMA, and developing a new social confidence. So to help you remember that, you can think of the cowardly lion. So communication. I'll use the analogy of the Tin Man's oil can, how he's sort of frozen and stuck. Individuals on the autism spectrum told me quite, uh, uh, quite a bit about how taking MDMA influenced their ability to communicate. The four primary categories were talking. They were better able to join in group discussions socially, uh, listening. Several people described being able to listen to what someone else was saying and sustain their attention and really sustain an interest in what the other person was telling them. There are several accounts of people being able to participate in enjoyable eye contact for the first time. Um, I, you know, difficulty with eye contact is a, is a common attribute for individuals on the autism spectrum. It actually can invoke a fear response that can for some individuals feel like dread and body language um, I several people told me that they had the sensation that when the effects of the MDMA come, came on they would say things such as all of a sudden I could read body language and they were quick, quick to acknowledge they didn't know how accurate they were but they felt very much as if they could interpret gestures, facial expressions, and subtleties of nonverbal communication, in some cases for the very first time. So here are a few examples from quoted material about what that sounded like. George was 24 when he tried MDMA for the first time. I interviewed him about four days after his first experience. And he said, I wanted to talk to people, but not in the way I usually do, i.e. lecture them. I listened to other people and cared deeply about what they were saying. He also added, I was actually enjoying making eye contact. On eye contact, in addition, he said, suddenly there was no discomfort at all. Not only no discomfort, but suddenly I felt it was like I could see the person behind the eyes. And I wanted to sort of know who it was. And it was sort of just looking in there to look for a slight reaction, slight sort of changes, just to see how he was reacting to me. And this was a very novel experience for George. He'd never experienced anything like this. I'll tell you a little side anecdote. He, uh, he was in Europe and went to a nightclub with a friend who was also on the spectrum. And by chance... Um, they encountered a psychiatric nurse who was at the club that night and the nurse said, you know, I have a client who identifies as Asperger's and she says her, you know, symptoms 
go away. When, when she takes MDMA and she actually likes making eye contact. So the two friends turned to each other and began deeply gazing into each other's eyes and he said it felt like hours. They just enjoyed looking at each other's faces, looking at each other, in each other's eyes deeply. And with a sense of humor, he said, by the end of the night we noticed we were, all, we were starting to look down at the ground again. But he added that he'd noticed in the, in the days following, he said, as I'm walking down the street now, my shoulders are up and back and my head is lifted and I'm less afraid to, to glance at people's faces. So he had a change there. Uh, begrimed was a 25-year-old male and this was regarding social conversation. He said, MDMA didn't make me unafraid of it, unafraid of conversation. It made me want to actually converse and make friends and all that. It was, it was something else. So, and to help you remember the theme of communication, think of the Tin Man and his oil can sort of loosening up. The next theme also related to our Tin Man, that heart connection, um, that reduction of the boundaries between people, increased intimacy, um, making friends, relating to family members, uh, romantic relationships and sexuality and intimacy were also sub-themes of the theme of connection. And to give you the flavor of, of the shifts that uh, MDMA helped catalyze, I'm going to read a somewhat longer quote by Sylvan. Sylvan was a 24-year-old male. So he said, There are actually certain friends I had made months previous to his first MDMA experience, or his second, actually, that I really wanted to get to know better. But due to my social anxiety, I was really just, well, I, I was intimidated by them. I really looked up to them and thought they would never really want to be my friends. So I kind of stopped talking to them out of shyness. But for a while, I really wanted to make a connection with them. It felt really important. So the day after that experience, I was still feeling so open and so changed that I made an effort to just get past my shyness and make a call to them. And I actually ended up seeing them that day. And it was really a great kind of reconnection. And I told them about my experience with MDMA. And since then, we've been pretty much best friends. And we do all these things together. And it's been one of the best places I've ever been in my life to reconnect and really feel that it was because I was so changed by that experience. So remember our friend, the Tin Man. Now, there was another level of connection that was a bit deeper, a bit more substantial, maybe on a mental connection level, even a spiritual level. And uh, I referred to that category as communion. And if you think of the, of the sort of communion, how the three or the, Dorothy and her three companions kind of started moving through their journey together as one unit, that sort of cohesive bond between them that might help you remember this communion theme. The best way to explain it is by providing some examples. Some of the main themes were sharing with others, which sometimes can be difficult for individuals on the spectrum who have difficulty navigating those social cues. Unity, empathic feeling, and empathic understanding. It's, it's a very widespread and deeply ingrained myth that individuals on the autism spectrum do not experience empathy. I encourage you to step away from that thinking and imagine that they experience empathy differently. 
And I'll give you some examples of what that sounded like to help you feel the difference between the empathy of caring and feeling for others in that sort of heart place and the empathy of understanding another's condition based on what you observe. And I think sometimes uh, typically developing individuals think they are much better in that capacity than they actually are. So, um, again, we're not, we're, we're not talking about empathic accuracy here, but perceptions of empathic experiences. So here's some examples. Uh, Michelangelo, 25, felt as if, and this is his quote, the mystery of other people had been dissolved a bit. Fuzzy, 23, said, I felt more emotionally connected to my friend, and I could understand his situation a lot better. Jules said, I found people much more enticing to be around. I want to connect with people, and I want to be around people. I want to hang out and commune with, like, some aspect of community. Tony, 36, said, I'm a little bit skeptical about some people's impressions of ecstasy because ecstasy is also an amphetamine, and while it increases your sense of empathy, it also probably increases your delusions of empathy at the same time. So maybe some of you can relate to that statement. And our fifth C is clarity. And this was the category that was the most unexpected finding in my research. This is where I started to hear a real difference between what I'd heard from typically developing MDMA XTC users and individuals on the autism spectrum. They talked about this profound clarity, just like the scarecrow there, the sudden straightening out of cognitive processes, this, the, the word clarity was repeated time and time and time again. And if I were a neuroscientist, I would be all over this. What is going on in the brain that allows these individuals under the influence of, of MDMA ecstasy to experience this profound clarity that strikes them as very sudden and novel, like something they had never experienced prior. It's a research question I hope someone will pick up. Uh, I'll read some quotes briefly here. So Morton, 49, said, it gave me a complete clarity about things I didn't have prior to that and the reason that I didn't have clarity prior to that was because I was always worried and anxious. So maybe the reduction of fear might have something to do with it. Fuzzy said, I have a ten tendency to just get stuck in thought loops about things, usually things that I don't want to be thinking about, and this kind of seemed to just not make that happen while I was on it. It didn't seem to happen at all. Begrimed said, for the first time, it was very, like, like, I finally got it. Like, you know how, I guess, autistic people, they don't really know those unwritten social rules and all that, you know? The nuances and conversation and stuff like that. Like, I got it. Like, it was just like, bing. And George said uh, that his thoughts were flowing lucidly. So that's... Um, and, and I'll add to that that 58% of the individuals that I interviewed for my dissertation uh, reported experiencing significant epiphanies, insight, or revelation. So they had these moments of awakening as a result of trying ecstasy. So uh, <laughs> remember, the, remember our scarecrow. And before we leave the characters of Wizard of Oz, I, I'll share with you that while I was 
over months and months of laborious work poring over all these transcripts, trying to extract the themes, at some point that lyric from the America song, Oz never did give nothing to the Tin Man that he didn't, didn't already have, kept repeating in my mind, it's important to remember that distinction, that it didn't come in in the form of a pill or a powder, but there was something latent. There was something unexpressed or something that was difficult to come forward that MDMA somehow smoothed out and allowed these attributes to be expressed. So, as we know in The Wizard of Oz, there were also, let's see, some undesirable attributes to being in Oz. Um, flying monkeys and wicked witches. So yes, not every report was glowing. I had to really dig to get the negative. It, there wasn't a lot of negative. That could be because of self-selection bias, meaning people who had great experiences were more likely to contact me to participate in interviews. But here are a few of the ways people describe the undesirable effects. Uh, Tony said, I just kind of wanted that the general happiness feeling of it because I don't naturally feel much of that at all. My general sensation is neutral to cold, I would say. And so I was hoping it would have some effect there, and I got, you know, I, I, I got pretty upset that it didn't, that it, nothing. It's like, am I ever going to have that? So he was a classic non-responder. You may know, you know, typically developing friends of yours who take MDMX ecstasy and they just don't have that effect. So Tony was an example of an autistic individual who reported that it just didn't work for him. Uh, Sylvan said it was a bit hard to kind of find a ground in myself for a while because all these kinds of new thoughts and new kinds of feelings were flooding into me and it was disorienting for a while. I was just stuck in my bed not knowing what to do. So there were other accounts of undesirable outcomes. Um, the main categories, distress, disappointment, overwhelm, overdisclosure, and the come down. But those accounts of the come down weren't significantly different than what you know I've heard and read from typically developing populations. So I'm going to speed up here. Um, before I, I leave the Wizard of Oz theme, I'll, have, I'll, I'll stay there a little bit longer. I just want to remind everybody, as, as I dig deeper into this theme, I keep seeing more Wizard of Oz everywhere I look. I don't think it's a coincidence that before Dorothy and her traveling companions could enter the Emerald City, they were in the poppy field, um, representing a unique uh, altered state of consciousness before. So we might think of the poppy field as, as you know, the MDMA experience that was sort of the gateway to the transformative experiences available in the Emerald City. And what did they find in the Emerald City? A horse of a different color. So um, I'm going to skip ahead here because there's a section that I did not cover at the Psychedelic Science Conference, um, uh, at the MAPS Conference, that I want to be sure we cover tonight. I have new material that's never been presented before that I want to leave time to share with you. Um, I want to just talk about Dorothy for a minute. If we imagine Dorothy as representing our, our MDMA journeyer in this analogy, Dorothy was undoubtedly transformed by her experience in Oz. It was temporary. It was sudden, like MDMA. Maybe it comes in like a tornado and whirls your world around upside down, and you have this 
you know, adventure in a new and novel, strange land. But at the end of the day, she was back in Kansas. And it wasn't the, you know, the big balloon that, you know, she was planning to leave with the wizard that got her back there. And I think sometimes people look to the substance in psychedelic journeying to be like that balloon to just pull them up and whisk them out of their you know, existence of everyday life into something new and fabulous. But at the end of the day, it was self-transformation that got Dorothy back home where she really needed to be. So just throw that little twist in there. Um, uh, briefly, I'll just mention, um, Quite, I'm asked frequently, but did these effects last after the drug effects wore off? And the answer was yes, with a lot of variety in terms of the duration. Um, for the quantitative portion of the dissertation, I did surveys that asked, you know, which effects did you experience and how long did they last? And um, I'll quote a couple of those when I uh, summarize key findings in, in just a minute here. But um, I want to give you a sense of how people describe the retention of, of the changed um, perceptions that they had. So Mary said, I can sort of recall that one moment, that memory, and it's fresh in my mind, and it's a very necessary thing in my life, like my life now. It was a peak experience that he had on MDMA connecting to close friends, and that stayed with him. And he said, with the MDMA moments, I remember them very vividly, and they fill me with a very great joy. George said, I was always sort of, you know, slightly critical of myself. You know, you can't keep conversation with other people because you just can't. Don't even bother trying. Whereas now, I've got this memory of, quote, well, hang on a minute. One night there a week ago, I went out, and I talked to a bunch of strangers, and they enjoyed my company, and I enjoyed their company. You know, this is one step, really, isn't it? And at the moment, it's, it's really helping that. So he was just a few days out from his first MDMA experience, but he was aware that his retention of that memory was still helpful to him. I'm going to skip over George's train ride. It's um, an anecdote uh, that is available if you... Um, do a Google search for my name, Alicia Danforth, MDMA, MAPS, 2013. You can hear George's story. Uh, but I want to make sure that we spend some time getting to the part of the talk that was cut off for time at the Oakland conference. So let's talk specifically about healing because, as I think Rick probably mentioned, where we are right now in the evolution of reintroducing our sacred plant and other entheogenic and pathogenic medicines, we're kind of um, in the stage of really emphasizing clinical research where you need to find a clinical indication and suggest a substance uh, or substance-assisted therapy for something specific. So what kind of healing did my participants mention um, when they described their experiences. Some were very much related to themes you would see with psychotherapy or couples therapy. More specifically, there was more awareness of affect. Statements such as, it's like I've been put in touch with all sorts of feelings. Or the main takeaway is, for me at least, is inclusion of emotion became much more apparent. Or 
I really got the feeling of experiencing a lot more feelings than ever before. Or I'm able to see emotions more clearly. There may be implications for establishing therapeutic rapport. There's scant literature on the effectiveness of conventional psychodynamic psychotherapy with autism. It Gen- the general thinking now is that it doesn't really tend to work. And one of the reasons might be the challenges because of autistic processing to establishing therapeutic rapport. And MDMA-assisted therapy may be helpful with something like that. Alexithymia, I have a couple quotes on that topic. Alexithymia is a word to describe difficulty in expressing and describing emotional responses. And uh, a few quotes will give you an idea of how MDMA ecstasy helps some of the study participants with putting words to their feelings. So Calvin, 21, who had the highest AQ score, um, said, it made it a lot easier to sort of process my emotions and put them into words properly, which is the main difficulty that I have, processing emotions and just getting it into words. Sanders said, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you if it wasn't for MDMA. I wouldn't have written an email to somebody else to have a conversation and speak about my feelings. He also said, I got the feeling that I slipped back a bit, but at the same time, I got the feeling that I can work on it. So the black hole might be a bit brighter today. Um, There's some additional areas where MDMA-assisted therapy might... um, you know, have implications for psychotherapy and couples counseling, problem solving, increasing optimism, gaining insight into the self. And my favorite phrase that Nick has taught me, increased social adaptability. A theme of interest, I think, to people at Burning Man might be touch. I've noticed people here really like touch. Um, what did MDMA do for touch for individuals on the autism spectrum? Uh, hypersensitivities to touch, discomfort with uncomfortable clothing or physical contact is common um, in the autism community. A lot of people have problems with touch. Not everyone by every mean, any means, but this is what Haas had to say when I asked about his comfort level around cuddling with other people prior to, prior to taking ecstasy. He said prior, his comfort level prior, like zero, and now I'm just like all about the hugs. Jules said that he was more sensuous with people. Biodrinks felt, quote, complete comfort like anybody else when he gave and received massages during his first MDMA experience at a dance club. That was something entirely new and novel for him. So dance clubs, not surprisingly, came up quite often in my interviews, a lot of people tried MDMA the first time. Music and dance was a huge theme, and it definitely has implication for music, movement, and dance therapies. Um, I'll read a couple quotes to just go right to the source here. Michelangelo said, I've had a pretty god-awful relationship with dance up until that stage. I remember at my debutante ball, I was sort of ostracized because I was one of the few people who just refused to dance, and my relationship with it would still be the same up until now, was it not for taking some MD- MDMA, because there was some cool music playing. I've never been into it before, but suddenly 
It was not only very fun, but it was easy, and I had no problem at all with it all of a sudden. And that's changed me, completely stayed with me until this day. I don't know why, it's just like the door was unlocked. And Krius was probably the, the biggest dance fan. Being able to dance and participate in social dance really changed his, his life, and this is what he had to say. He said, I've been listening to a lot of music that I would never listen to before. How many of you here have said that about electronic dance music? Like, ah, I've never listened to techno, and, and then suddenly you love it. Um, that uh, I would never listen to before. The act of dancing is just amazing, where it never has been before ecstasy. And I can't help but believe that this chemical has profoundly impacted my ability to be free in that way. Like, what a gift. Whew. Okay. Um, you may be familiar with the PTSD studies that, that MAPS has sponsored. Um, they've published some of their findings. They're promising and looks like lots more research in this area is going to get funded and continue in the coming years. Three participants of, of the, the individuals I interviewed um, on the autism spectrum spontaneously talked about PTSD and how MDMA helped them recover from PTSD. I'll read quotes from two of them. Isabeau was a rape survivor, and this is what she had to say. And so MDMA was kind of a facilitator, and she's referring to taking it with her romantic partner at the time. So he and I could be in this warm, safe, trusting environment in this little bubble we built together, and the MDMA lowered our barriers enough so we could say, hey, this is what happened to me, and this is what, you know, this is how it affects me still. And we could share our stories, I guess, in this, you know, very, very, very safe, very trusting, very private, but very intense environment that we kind of created ourselves. So she credited uh, taking MDMA with a romantic partner with helping her move beyond her PTSD. Haas was a male, and um, he had quite a bit of significant trauma in his youth when he was a, was a boy. And he was very clear when he stated his belief that MDMA could be a potential cure for PTSD. He said, I think it, uh, I said, I think it is like a cure for it, and it actually needs to be publicized, and people need to know because to deny this to people who suffer from it is cruel and sick, like genuinely. Those are strong words, but seriously, it's like withholding the cure. It's not like, it is a cure. So he credited, again, taking ecstasy and social settings with helping him um, leave PTSD behind. At the time of his interview, he was an in a university student, and uh, he reported that he limited his substance use for the sake of his studies. So sometimes people have, have approached me about their concern, aren't you afraid people are going to run wild once they have these great opening experiences and, and develop you know, problematic use? That wasn't the case with the population that I studied. Nobody reported it was so good I couldn't stop doing it. I'm going to fall back on a stereotype right now. I realize it's a stereotype and it doesn't apply to everyone on the spectrum. But there's a general consensus that as a group, they tend to be logic-driven 
and they like getting literal fact-based information. So I was really impressed with the level of homework that they had done about the relative risks and benefits and you know, uh, best practices for using MDMA safely in recreational settings. So I just want to add that. And in our final healing category, I want to say a little bit about social anxiety because 58% of the participants that I interviewed reported that their experiences with MDMA ecstasy helped them significantly with social anxiety. The best way to give you a sense of this, I'm just going to go rapidly through a series of very brief quotes so you'll get the flavor. So, Biodrinks said, socially, all the anxiety I had completely gone. Sylvan, I've credited that one experience to nearly wiping out my social anxiety, which at that point had been strong. Morton, I used to experience terrible anxiety before I took ecstasy, and this disappeared completely while I was actually high on the drug, and I was able to communicate much more openly. I'll add that maybe similar to experiences some of you have had, with later subsequent use, he found that ecstasy use brought his anxiety up. So it's important to keep, always keep in mind it's not a panacea. While some people talk about this kind of vanishing of social anxiety symptoms, it doesn't work for everyone that way. Docstar, I felt... I just felt comfortable talking about everything. And so it was kind of a relief of the anxiety of holding things back. Mary said, I generally suffer from a manageable amount of anxiety, but after, uh, after use of MDMA, I'm generally lacking in anxiety for about a week, after which it comes back quite quickly. So there's another variation. David, it reduces social anxiety for me, I guess. I feel like I can step onto a dance floor and have a lot of fun. Isabeau, it's a little easier just being around the whole press of people without still feeling like, oh my God, there's all these people and they're all around me and I don't know how any of them think. And finally, Michelangelo said, I feel like I understand people just a little bit better, and that pushed me into the area of confidence that I needed to be in, and that stayed with me ever since. So I guess that's a good segue. Oh, briefly, I'll just share three key findings from the quantitative data that I think really speak to you know, the significant uh, potential and, and need for additional research in this area. For the survey, I interviewed one, or I collected survey data from 100 individuals who had used MDMA between 1 and 50, 50 times. And then I, as, as a control, I, as a comparison group, I interviewed 50 individuals on the spectrum who had never taken MDMA. But here's what some of the individuals who had taken MDMA reported, and I'll just give you three quick stats. Um, I hope you kind of take this with you and remember some of these. Okay, so 72% of the survey participants who had used MDMA between 1 and 50 times, 72% reported more comfort in social settings, and 12% reported that that effect lasted two or more years. And I should add that that number is probably going to go up because many of the people I interviewed, two years had not passed since they tried it. 
78% reported feeling at ease in my own body, with 15% reporting that that effect lasted two years or more. And finally, 77% reported that they found it easier than usual to talk to others, and 18% of the survey respondents reported that that effect lasted up to one year or longer. Just a brief list, list of some potential areas of future research that were suggested by the dissertation findings. Um, I'm not going to go into them in detail here. But I always like to take advantage of opportunities like this to make my pitch for the value of qualitative research. At the beginning of this presentation, I have a slide where the, the ratio is reversed, where there's a big circle um, emphasizing qualitative subjective research, getting to know the population you're studying and hearing from them from their own experiences, where their challenges lie, you know, what their needs are, and do, using that inductive approach to cast a broad net and get lots of little data points to inform your hypothesis testing when you switch over and reverse that proportion and do your big quant little qual. So I'm hoping in scientific inquiry in this area there'll be more resources invested in the qualitative research and more value placed on gathering subjective experiences first. And here's why I feel so strongly about this point. I came to this research with no prior expertise whatsoever in autism. My mind was filled with stereotypes that you might have heard. You know, they're like robots. They don't feel empathy. They have no sense of humor. There are no emotions in there. I'd been told all sorts of grossly inaccurate and actually damaging stereotypes, things that harm the autism community. But as a result of getting to know autistic individuals who were verbal, who could communicate with me, and listening deeply to their experiences, letting them tell me in their own words what was troubling for them, what struck me was no one told me that they wanted to get rid of the autism. Being autistic was a pervasive and intrinsic part of who they were for from, from, from many of the individuals I spoke with. And I was really struck by the fact that many of them told me that if there was a cure for autism, they'd decline it. They like the gifts. They value some of the attributes of those cog that, that cognitive diversity, those processing differences. But what they did tell me is they would love to get relief from the social anxiety that accompanies having a different operating system, being a neuro minority. When you have to open the front door in the morning and go out in the world if you're able, and the analogy that's used time and time again is, you know, I was born on the wrong planet. I just don't get these people, and it's painful for me. It interferes with my ability to have relationships. I'd like to have a job and contribute. And, and you know, like here, we, we value contributing our talents to the greater good of the community. Autistic individuals would love to have some of the barriers removed to increase social adaptability so they could do the same. So here's uh, the last point I'll make. As I was doing this research, hearing these stories and, and these themes were coming out and I was getting some clarity around what the needs of the community might be, 
um, I was thinking maybe in five or ten years we might be able to use some of this material as foundational for an actual pilot study of MDMA-assisted therapy. And things started falling together, and the, I'll cut to the chase. Um, in May, before I even had an opportunity to defend the dissertation, we got FDA approval for a MAP-sponsored study, a pilot study that is due to launch as soon as all the final regulatory approvals are secured. This isn't 100% approved yet, but we're over the hurdle of FDA approval to provide MDMA-assisted therapy for social anxiety with a study group of 12 MDMA-naive adults, everyone over age 21, um, at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center. I'll be a co-investigator with Dr. Charles Grobe at Harbor UCLA. So we will be able to test this model and see if these kind of benefits were reported from recreational use, what might be able to be achieved in terms of um, you know, improving outcome measures for social anxiety in a controlled clinical setting with carefully facilitated treatment, MDMA-assisted therapy, with careful pre-work, intention setting, and then extensive post-integration work to help them maximize the benefit of, of the treatment session. So look for some more announcements. MAPS has already announced that we got the FDA approval. We need IRB approval, DEA, California Research Advisory Panel, or now they're the Research Advisory Panel of California, so they have a better acronym. You can figure that one out. Um, and we hope to start enrolling around January. So I'll leave it at that kind of optimistic, forward-thinking point and uh, open it up for any questions folks may have. Thank you. I'm going to wait just a second for someone to bring a microphone around. Sorry, you, you talk about neurodiversity as regards um, typical development versus autism spectrum. Are there other dimensions of non... of, of non-typical neurology or other directions of neurodiversity that you are interested in would like to mention? At present, my focus has been exclusively with autistic adults, but I know within the neurodiversity movement, um, there, there's a much more inclusive definition to include other cognitive differences such as bipolar and OCD and other cognitive configurations that you know traditionally have been pathologized and, and marginalized, stigmatized, there's a, a movement to kind of embrace the broader spectrum of, of cognitive diversity. And so I have not had an opportunity to, to delve in, um, but who knows, we'll, we'll see where the autism research goes and we may be able to start extending MDMA-assisted therapy or work with other psychedelic-assisted therapy for other neurocognitive minorities. Yeah, Thank you. It's wide open. So I was diagnosed with Asperger's at 11. And at 11? Yes, yeah. PTSD at um, 28. Um, I've taken a massive amount of MDMA over the years. Um, I found that it has had pretty much all the positive effects that you describe. I also think there have been some long-term uh, negative effects from just sort of 
the the quantity that I've used. Mm. And, and I wonder if you could comment on that sort of the, the the cons that could come from using that as a regular part of your uh, sort of therapy. It is something yeah. that we think about. It is a concern. There are really two safety concerns that have uh, you know occupied my thoughts. Um, the first one that you mentioned, as researchers, what is our responsibility to mitigate the potential risk of overuse? Um, I think we're going to have to pay you know, gr- great attention to education and providing alternatives. I know martial arts was mentioned earlier. A lot of individuals that I talked to talked about how they had these profound opening experiences with entheogenic you know, substances, but wanted to continue and find another path to continue that growth without relying on drugs. And martial arts, for example, was one example that came up. Social dance and sort of a moving away, a substitute. So, yes, we do think about it. It does keep me up at night sometimes thinking, are we opening a door for people to think, oh, great, MDMA, I'll, I'll take this often. So extensive you know, counseling and coaching and providing alternatives, doing everything that we can to educate the public about you know, the, the potential risks of, and, and how do we help people not become dependent on the substance. So that's, that's really kind of the difference uh, between recreational use, people out using pills, and MDMA-assisted therapy. They're, they're very different you know, modalities. Uh, the other concern that I, I want to be sure to mention, this is probably my biggest fear, and my God, I'm just about to put it on a podcast, so here we go. I can't emphasize enough that at this point in history, uh, I personally, and I think most of the other members of our research team, I can't speak for them, but this, at this point in history, we are only looking at adults, adults who are 21 or older at the age of consent. MDMA is not for children at this time. And my fear is that the parents of autistic children may take matters into their own hands, and unfortunately, because of the the Controlled Substances Act and the status of MDMA presently, most of them have no other avenues available to them than scrounging around on the street for potentially dirty product that could harm the kids. So if you happen to talk about this research with anyone else, I encourage you to emphasize adults only. We do not know about the effect of MDMA on developing brains. We don't know about the safety profile in kids. And it's my personal belief, my perspective is very clinical. I'm trained as a psychotherapist. And thinking developmentally, I really question, there's no data, this is just speculation on my part, but I question if an individual has not reached a certain developmental stage, is MDMA really going to do that much for them if, if the you know, ego isn't kind of at a certain stage in development, if they haven't experienced you know, certain life experiences, is MDMA really going to do that much at all for kids? So not for kids. Please help spread that message out there. So. Uh, we're going in the in the pilot study. We're going to do kind of a dose escalation study because it's really a feasibility and safety pilot study. We're going to have uh, different individuals receiving different doses, starting at the smaller dose. We want to know if, because of known hypersensitivities with autism, is what we would call a standard clinical dose for a typically developing individual. Maybe someone with autism needs a, a somewhat lower dose. 
maybe they need a somewhat higher dose. So I, I, you think I, I think about seventy five, one hundred, one twenty five. Um, I'd have to look at the protocol, but but in there, but in there. So we're going to start a little bit on the lower end and see if that's sufficient. We have time for one more question. Hello. Hey, I'm over here. Hi. <laughs> um, I'm curious to know if any of the participants reported a change, uh, increase or decrease in any challenging, challenging behaviors or self-stimulatory behaviors that they may have. Ah. Uh, uh, several people told me um, they were a little bit embarrassed. We were interviewing over Skype, and they were a bit embarrassed as they started stimming. And I just completely normalized stimming. Like, stimming is just a form of communication. Um, uh, I'm trying to think specifically. No one mentioned specifically that they had reduced stimming behaviors or reduction in, in ticks or, or kind of the physiological changes. Um, trying to think of some specific examples that stand out that might be relevant to your question. It had more to do with um, changes in, you know, uh, reduction of fear and in initiating conversations or comfort with eye contact, um, enjoying touch more. It, it, am I getting to the point that you were, yeah. Aggression? Beca- because of the limits of my resources as a, as a graduate student, I was only able to, to use ex- technology to an extent to work with individuals who were verbal, and uh, a, a lot of them talked about leaving some of those behaviors behind in their youth, and the ones who told me about MDMA use in their teen years definitely talked about a reduction in behaviors. One guy had been incarcerated several times, and he was able to avoid getting in trouble with the law. So some people reflected back on changes in behavior in their youth. Um, things that, that you meant, like aggression, acting out, meltdowns. Um, but again, it's all anecdotal. It's just storytelling at this point. We need to gather the hard data so that we can answer that question more conclusively. Um, so uh, we, I didn't have the ability to interact with people to gather data who have who have the designation of classic autism um, for our study we want to be as inclusive as possible so we are leaving it open to individuals who use text to speech technologies so it's not a requirement that one is verbal to participate in the clinical study but I didn't talk to people who are in the kind of more classic autism category who may be more prone to behaviors like head banging because you know, for whatever reason, they're not able to verbalize what's bothering them, or they're using, you know, self-simulating behaviors to reduce, you know, uncomfortable hypersensitivities. So that's an unexplored area. Excellent question. New territory that we're taking our baby steps right now. Okay, I think that that wraps it up. Thank you. Thank you, Alicia. Although Alicia's research until now has been largely anecdotal, uh, just think of the possibilities that lie ahead as some rigorous scientific research is done in this area. And uh, that's what we're going to hear about now. As you already know, the talk that we just heard Alicia give took place at the end of August of last year, 
which was 2013 for you time travelers of the future. And now I'm going to play a recording of a Skype interview that I did a week ago with Alicia and Dr. Charlie Grobe. And we talk about the new study that they have just begun at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center in Southern California. As you'll hear, the quality of my recording of this conversation leaves much to be desired, but I think that nonetheless you'll find the information quite interesting. Well, uh... Thank you, uh, uh, Alicia and Charlie, for uh, joining us here in the salon. I know that uh, a lot of our fellow saloners are going to have some uh, many questions about this new study because they always like to know what's going on in the world of psychedelic research, although I'm not sure this is totally psychedelic. But uh, let's, uh, let's just start with the fact that you guys have now started a new clinical trial with uh, MDMA-assisted therapy for social anxiety in autistic adults. And uh, so let me just pass the baton to the two of you and uh, let you tell me, uh, tell the, the, the saloners here what, uh, how long the study's been going on and what the uh, focus of it is. Well, that, that's really a big question. Let me see if I can give you the, the short answer. Um, from about 2009 on, I've been working on my dissertation about the MDMA ecstasy experiences of adults on the autism spectrum. And uh, near the time I was uh, starting to write the final dissertation, um, Dr. Grove and I started talking more seriously about the potential of doing clinical work in this area. And uh, MAPS put out a request for proposal. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And they had some interest in exploring what might be possible in this area. So uh, we went ahead and uh, put together a proposal and uh, collaborated with the team at MAPS to uh, submit uh, what we thought would be a a good pilot study uh, first to the FDA and... um, Despite the perception that people have that uh, government agencies can be uh, very difficult to work with and and reluctant to approve uh, clinical studies with uh, Schedule I substances like MDMA, that approval process was very smooth. So from there, we had several other regulatory agencies that needed to review and approve the proposal and... uh, it, it went very, uh, very smoothly, and um, in December of last year, 2013, the DEA approved Dr. Grove's schedule and license, and that was the last barrier we had to starting. So beginning in January of 2014, we got very busy preparing the treatment space and putting the team together and getting ready to start, and um, this week we actually began the screening process for the first potential participant. So um, we've launched. The study is, is uh, in progress. And and so what you're saying is, is this isn't uh, anything to actually uh – change or cure autism and as i understand it many autistic high functioning autistic people don't want to lose some of their special abilities but it's more to uh, help them uh, feel more comfortable in social situations um well it's it's 
understandable that when many people first hear about this study, they assume that we are somehow trying to treat or cure autism. But that's not the case at all. Autism is genetic, it's pervasive, um, meaning that it really is part of the whole person. Right. Well, these are individuals who have grown up with some degree of delay in their acquisition of uh, language skills, uh, a a delay in their um, capacity to interact socially. Uh, Autistic kids often grow up very um, isolated and quite overwhelmed by, you know, tasks of day-to-day living that, you know, neurotypicals, let's say, might take for granted, but often very challenging for a young autistic individual. And many autistic autistic kids will grow up to be autistic adults. And there's a spectrum of degree of impairment ranging from individuals with uh, experiencing uh, in in social situations. In part, that might be because of early experiences of uh, not being accepted by the group or of being um, split off and picked on, teased, bullied by peers. Uh, Social interactions might early on have been highly unpleasant to the point where later in life uh, individuals with this condition become somewhat avoidant. And and it's very important to emphasize that we're not attempting to cure the autism in and of itself. It's um, simply to help individuals um, uh, improve their capacity to adapt and interact with uh, the mainstream world. Many individuals who are high-functioning on the autism spectrum, uh, feel very positive about their about themselves, about their um, what we might in, in, in the normative world consider unusual traits, but they, they, they would see many of them as, uh, as a strength and would not want to be changed in that regard. But that being the case, it's often a, um, an emotionally painful process to attempt to interact with... Uh, with neurotypical individuals, so we're trying to help help our subjects or our future subjects to um, better understand the, uh, in a sense, the rules of social engagement and and really help them uh, achieve a, uh, a a better, a higher level of functioning out in the social world. So, Alicia, you might want to uh, expand on that. One uh, potential long-term outcome, if we're really focusing on quality of life, is um, there's a potential for MDMA-assisted therapy to help adults on the spectrum potentially be uh, maybe more successful in the workplace. Uh, could could you tell me, Charlie, just kind of give me a, a brief overview of the protocol of this? Uh, this is a phase one uh, study, a pilot study, right? Well, it, w- it would be really phase two because it's with an identified uh, patient population. It's it's not a normal volunteer population, but it's a pi- it's a pilot investigation where we have been approved to recruit 
12 subjects who are high-functioning on the autism spectrum, um, the ages of 21 and older. So we're not recruiting child or adolescent subjects. One has to be at least 21, and also subjects must have at least two years of college education or the equivalent. So a threshold on an instrument that measures social anxiety. So we're, we're screening for both um, autism. They'll, they'll be administered a structured diagnostic instrument designed to ascertain whether an individual is on the autism spectrum. They'll also be administered a social anxiety uh, scale uh, questionnaire, which will establish whether they have sufficient social anxiety to be entered into the study. Uh, we're ruling out individuals with uh, uh, other serious uh, mental disease and um, individuals with serious medical disorders, uh, particularly cardiovascular disorders. So we're approved to recruit 12 subjects who fit the inclusion criteria and who do not fit the exclusion criteria. Uh, it is a placebo-controlled, uh, double-blind, randomized study. And uh, for the first phase of the study, uh, eight subjects will be randomized into receiving two MDMA sessions. And keep in mind, this is all after lengthy screening and preparation. Eight or two-thirds of the subject gets randomized into an active drug treatment, and four or one-third of the subjects are randomized into a, uh, two separate uh, treatment sessions uh, spaced at least uh, a month apart. And, uh, and afterwards, we do extensive follow-up um, uh, you know, therapy treatment to help individuals uh, integrate uh, that experience and also to track their function over time. And at the end of the six-month uh, data follow-up period, for the individuals who had been randomized into the placebo group, if they would, at that point, would like an MDMA, uh, uh, MDMA session, or actually two sessions for them. So essentially a pilot investigation uh, exploring safety parameters and efficacy in 12 adults who are high-functioning on the autism spectrum, social anxiety. I really like the fact that you are uh, going to take the people who had the placebo and give them the opportunity, should they so desire, to uh, have the experience too, because uh, that's always one of my complaints about some of these double-blind studies is some people really get left out. Right, right. Yes, we have to wait until the full full data follow up period passes. But then we we felt it was only fair to uh, offer these people an, an open label treatment. And my guess is that uh, one of the other requirements is that none of your subjects have uh, uh, used MDMA in the past. Good point. Thank you for raising that. Yes, all subjects uh, to enter the study must be entirely naive to MDMA. Okay. And uh, now, now the study is being conducted. Uh, where, where is the actual study taking place? Well, the study will be at the uh, Los Angeles Biomedical Research Institute at Harbor UCLA Medical Center, 
which is in Torrance, uh, in uh, Los Angeles County. And because of the many um, occasions, subjects will have to come in to meet with us at our offices at uh, L.A. Biomed and Harbor UCLA. Um, uh, we're, we're looking for subjects who live within the greater Los Angeles region. It just would not make practical sense to recruit uh, subjects from out of town who would have to then commit to making multiple trips down to L.A. So we're looking for, um, for, for people who live you know, more or less locally, within a 30, 40-mile radius of the, um, uh, of, of the treatment site, which is in Torrance. Uh, Charlie, uh, you know, you and I, uh, in the past, uh, we did some interviews with uh, Gary Fisher because he worked with children in psychedelics years and years ago. Did he have any influence on uh, your ideas here? Gary began his career uh, studying psychedelics as a, uh, as, as a psychologist, really, going back to the late 50s. His, his brother-in-law was one of the early researchers with... Um, uh, Humphrey Osmond in Saskatchewan in Canada and introduced him to um, two psychedelics at that time. Uh, Gary was involved with the treatment of um, a number of uh, different kinds of patients, but the area I think that most remembered for is his work with profoundly disturbed children at the Fairview State Hospital in Southern California, where over a period of time, he treated with uh, psilocybin children who by today's standards, many of them were likely uh, severely autistic. <clears throat> some uh, childhood and adolescent, uh, by today's criteria, at least some of these kids were uh, autistic. And speaking with Gary at great length and going through his, his collected um, uh, uh, papers uh, from his old study, it, it was clear that his work with these young people had uh, an enormous impact, and he had very, very positive results. Unfortunately, by the uh, early mid-60s, the, um, th this issue of psychedelics had kind of escaped the uh, confines of the uh, research treatment studies and had uh, emerged into the greater culture had become very controversial. Um, there were some very provocative uh, public figures who spoke out on this issue. And the government, I think by around 64, 65, uh, ordered Gary to shut down his, uh, his research project. Uh, but be as it may, we, <clears throat> Alicia and I both got to know Gary very well. <laughs> and, um, uh, spoke with him at length about his early experience treating these young people and found it quite inspirational. And it was our belief that this, uh, the area of autism really lent itself to this treatment model, although we're very careful to emphasize that we're not treating children, we're not treating teenagers, we're only treating um, adults. Uh, but adults on the autism spectrum, adults who are high-functioning on the autism spectrum. 
And uh, I'll put some uh, links to some of the recordings that uh, you and I uh, made of with Gary Fisher uh, interviews that we did with him in the past. And uh, a lot of that is talked about, and we've got it here in the salon. So uh, is there anything else that you want to be sure to that you get in? Well, um, just that, uh, you know, we're very excited about the um, prospects of this study. <clears throat> we're treating a patient population for which mainstream treatments are often quite lacking. Uh, conventional psychotropic medications often do not uh, effectively alleviate the significant anxiety and mood problems and uh, adjustment problems that people on the autism spectrum have. And we think we have a very new and novel treatment approach. And... Um, We'll, we'll pursue this in a very careful, uh, conservative manner, but we feel at the end of the day we may have some very interesting uh, research data to share with our colleagues and, and the uh, public at large. Uh, Alicia, I, uh, you know, having some experience myself with MDMA and, and a lot of uh, talk with others in the community, a lot of people think of it as an empathogen. Uh, so are you talking about uh, uh, something to do with empathy in the spectrum, or, or is that a myth about uh, autism? I, I'm glad you asked about empathy. Um, it's a big issue, and it's a source of a lot of misunderstanding. The first thing I was taught when I first was told about Asperger's was um, the definition I was given was that uh, uh, Asperger's means that someone cannot feel empathy. And I just accepted that at face value until I began working with adults on the autism spectrum and, and found out really nothing was further from the truth. The problem arises from how people use the term empathy. It's very broad and it means a lot of different things. Um, the ability to uh, observe someone and make an informed guess about what they might be thinking and feeling is very different than the type of empathy that involves having um, feelings for the condition of someone else, feeling sad because someone you care about is feeling sad. So that distinction leads to a lot of confusion. Adults on the spectrum have challenges processing the cues, especially the nonverbal cues, things like facial expressions and uh, uh, body language, um, tone of voice that might indicate sarcasm. Those little social cues can be difficult, if not impossible, to interpret uh, correctly which uh, can lead to the appearance that someone lacks empathy. So I want to uh, just uh, make sure that everyone is clear that we're not trying to uh, somehow instill empathy that is lacking by providing MDMA. That being said, you know, all individuals have the potential to explore new domains or new depths of empathy uh, by participating in MDMA-assisted therapy. So um, there may be uh, new awarenesses 
new abilities to uh, engage with others on a deep level, but I want to make sure that we don't keep perpetuating the myth that uh, people on the autism spectrum do not feel every level of this research. Um, we are making our very best effort to uh, employ what's known as community-based participatory research, um, meaning that we just don't have, um, you know, someone come in maybe once to look at the treatment room and say, yeah, looks okay to me. We have had a consultant on our team. Nick Walker is an educator, scholar, and writer who's also an autistic self-advocate. And um, we had Nick come in as a team member from the very beginning of protocol development to help us make the best choices about the instruments and assessments that we selected. Um, he's advised us and contributed in a really significant way to the protocol development. We have him review documents that are submitted to the regulatory agencies, um, and he's been invaluable in helping us uh, raise our awareness about how we use language. Uh, he's helped us prevent some of these myths and myths misconceptions that are, you know, often unintentionally harmful to the autism community. He's also been, you know, really instrumental in helping us as a liaison with the media and uh, supporting MAPS in, in getting really great messages uh, about autism and the autism community out there. Does, does this mean that uh, depending on the results of this uh, initial study that you hope to maybe uh, go beyond it and, and have a follow-on study that's a, a larger study? <laughs> I try never to get too far ahead of myself. <laughs> we have our hands full right now, but um, of, of course, you know, the, the hope is always there that the data will be good and, and will support uh, larger trials. What we're doing right now is is really a small pilot that will allow us to uh, test safety parameters. Uh, one of the commitments we made early on was uh, we didn't want to assume that the doses that are considered kind of in the ideal range for typically developing research participants would be the best for people on the spectrum because they often have uh, sensory hypersensitivities. The internal world of someone with autism can often be very chaotic and, and um, uh, sensory input can be overwhelming. So we're actually doing, uh, the, the study's actually structured so that uh, people will get differing doses so we can help determine what's really the ideal dose for someone on the spectrum. Um, and as a result of you know, taking these little baby steps now, we hope to refine how we provide MDMA-assisted therapy for autistic adults to inform future studies. That's always the hope, but we have to... Uh, we have to uh, Get, get this study done and analyze the data and, and see what it tells us. 
So you've got to walk before you run, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I often refer to myself as the queen of baby steps. I think you get a lot farther faster if you, you know, take the small, carefully considered steps. Of course, always putting safety first and, you know, slowing down to really uh, explicit input from the research participants about their experience. Um, and always, you know, uh, identifying your best practices and building those into the protocols that follow. Uh, how's your, your reception been to some of the uh, talks that you've given? And lots of anecdotal um, accounts of what it was like when um, people on the spectrum took MDMA ecstasy on their own. So I did have a really rich body of uh, some quantitative data, but mostly qualitative data about the subjective experiences. So that's what I've been able to talk about publicly. Um, I gave uh, the talk at Burning Man. In fact, I was able to give several talks. Um, And after every presentation, I was pretty blown away by the fact that um, autistic uh, people from the audience would emerge and approach me and really validate uh, the, the, the accounts that I was sharing, saying you know, that, that was my experience. I could really relate to what you were saying. I was really amazed to learn. I suppose I shouldn't have been, but I was really amazed to learn how many autistic burners there are. Um, they approached me after every talk that I gave, and uh, it was really interesting to listen to how they um, uh, kind of compensated for uh, hypersensitivities, um, how they managed the chaos at Burning Man, and some of them had some really interesting strategies. And, you know, I thought about it. Like, what is it about this community that would... Uh, really attract uh, people on the spectrum. And uh, I realized, you know, it's, it's a community that celebrates diversity. And one of the favorite terms that uh, Nick Walker, our, our community consultant, taught me from the very beginning was this term neurodiversity. And I realized that Burning Man is is a place where that diversity is really respected and embraced. People who don't fit the norm can find a place where they belong there. People with special talents and creative gifts and, uh, uh, you know, unique abilities as musicians and visual artists and designers and engineers uh, you know, we're all welcome there. So I think that's part of the draw for um, autistic community members. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, in the past, I, I've had a few uh, challenging moments at Burning Man myself, and uh, perhaps the autistic community could uh, put some protocols together for people like me that uh, have challenges at Burning Man. If they're able to make it, uh, they've got a lot to teach us, I think. Oh, Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I have a fantasy that uh, I won't be able to uh, really 
um, act on it this year, but I have a fantasy of, of creating a camp. Um, I've even named it one of the biggest uh, autism interest websites is called Wrong Planet because of this notion that a lot of people on the spectrum sometimes feel like they were just born on the wrong planet because it's so difficult for them to figure out the social rules that they're expected to follow. So I'd really like to create a camp called Camp Right Planet at Burning Man. <laughs> Someplace where people on the spectrum can just, you know, bring their unique gifts and, you know, get some support they need to, to, you know, help enable them to have the very best Burning Man experience that they can. So I think that's a wonderful idea, and I'll I'll be happy to support it however I can. <laughs> you know, uh, Charlie uh, did mention also a, a moment ago that uh, the you're you're looking to recruit uh, participants mainly or only really from the L.A. area. So, in closing here, maybe you could uh, tell us uh, if somebody knows someone autistic or someone is uh, autistic, or uh, how do they get in touch with you? What's the next step if they would like to find out more about participating in this? So that's all one word, clinicaltrials.gov. If you do a search for MDMA and social anxiety, our study will come up, and it has a lot of information about the protocol, including the inclusion and exclusion criteria for the study. If you scroll down, there's contact information um, for the research team down at the bottom. Another way that you can reach us more directly is by sending an email to um, A Danforth, that's A D A N F is in Frank O R T H at LABiomed.org. And I'll put uh, both of those uh, links and all that information on the website, uh, the program notes for today's podcast, too. So uh, everybody should be able to find that. And hopefully uh, some of our fellow saloners uh, have uh, friends or family members or perhaps they're high-functioning autistic people themselves who would like to uh, contribute to this research in one way or another. So uh, I hope that they will get in touch with you. Oh, one thing I should mention is um, Max is also just about to launch a special website dedicated just to providing information about this study. And that should be online, I guess, in another week or so. Um, it's now March 2014, so I imagine by April we'll have uh, a website with all sorts of information. And um, I would just check with uh, the maps.org website for a link to... Well, Alicia, thank you so much for your time and Charlie for your time. I really appreciate uh, both of you taking a Saturday morning here out of your schedule to uh, talk to us here in the salon. And uh, hopefully uh, this information will reach a wider audience and uh, maybe we can all uh, pull together and, and help some of our uh, friends who uh, are just a little uh, uncomfortable in the social situations. Uh, I, I don't consider myself autistic, but I'm very uncomfortable <laughs> socially too. So I do appreciate the work that you're all doing. Yeah, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. In the program notes for today's podcast, uh, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, 
I'll uh, post Alicia's email address as well as the links to the various websites that she mentioned. And before I give you an update on our pledge drive, I just want to make a brief comment about social anxiety. As Alicia mentioned, there is a considerable degree of stress that people feel when they or someone close to them suffers from one or another form of cognitive diversity. While it is not exactly the same situation as being in an autistic family, my mother suffered from severe epilepsy. And for my brother and me, this caused a degree of stress whenever a friend would come to our house to play, because on occasion my mother would have a seizure. And it isn't a pleasant thing to witness, uh, particularly when it's your mother who's suffering. Of course, my brother and I were equally worried about ourselves, you know, about what the children at school would say about her and about us after witnessing such an event. In fact, our entire family was very protective of her, and yes, it did cause us all some anxiety when, well, whenever we'd uh, attend school functions and other public events as a family. But back then, epilepsy was, uh, well, it was something that was seldom discussed, at least uh, when us children were around. And as a result, we probably didn't handle it as well as we should have. In fact, as uh, young boys, my brother and I would sometimes wonder if when we got older, the seizures would manifest themselves in us as well. Thankfully, they didn't, but those memories of protecting someone we loved from the unknowing slights of others has never left me, and so I have a great deal of empathy for autistic individuals and for the people who love them. So I'm extremely grateful that uh, Charlie and Alicia, with the financial support of MAPS, are doing this very important work. Now uh, for some news about our annual pledge drive. First of all, since uh, this is something new that we're doing here, I'm going to be kind of finding my way as I go along. So the first thing that I figured out is that in posting the names of our fellow Saloners who have made donations, I'm also going to include the names of everyone who has donated in the calendar year of 2014, which only seems fair. And those donors, uh, along with everyone who is donating during the March Pledge Drive, will be receiving an email from me sometime during the month of April. The purpose of these emails, in addition to thanking you, of course, will be to confirm how you want to be listed. Most people uh, may want only their name and last initial, but some people prefer that their full name be listed, and others want to use a screen name or apply a name. So I want to be sure that I get that right. Also, uh, in those emails, I'll confirm the address to send the thumb drives to those who donated $45 or more. So don't worry about whatever address PayPal has for you. I will definitely confirm the shipping address with you before they are shipped. And as to when the thumb drives will be shipped, well, I've got to gear up and get eight more podcasts out as quickly as I can so that we can reach that magic number of 400 podcasts for the thumb drive. Uh, And all of those will be on the drive that you receive. Also, I'll be including about a hundred of my favorite Terrence McKenna sound bites. Originally, I began setting those little segments aside in the hopes that I would find the energy to uh, string some of them together into a completely new talk of some kind. But, uh, well, it's become obvious that I'm not going to uh, get to that project anytime soon. So my new idea is to uh, send these along to our donors and uh, let them put something together that, well, maybe we can play here in the salon one day. And just to give you a little idea of what I'm talking about in the way of a soundbite, I'm going to play a few of them uh, at random uh, in a moment here, right after I sign off for today. 
As I said at the beginning of this podcast, with the month only half over, our pledge drive is more than two-thirds of the way completed. So it looks almost certain that these podcasts will be continuing through February of next year, and most likely well beyond that. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. It's a wonderful thing to learn to be able to stand up and yell bullshit. The world is obviously made of mind and intention. When they come with the machine guns, the taste for politics turns bitter. And they always do come with machine guns. The politics of the situation here in this millennial crisis I think the, res- the reasonable response is to push the art pedal right through the floor. The way to escape the present cul-de-sac is an enormous outbreak of creativity of all sorts. We just need to overwhelm ourselves with creative expression. So we're on hold. Nobody knows what's going on.